If you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, we're beginning to dig into what I think is the heart of the book of Romans. It's all good, uh, but these chapters that we're now in, 6 through uh, 8, are just such a wonderful, wonderful picture of who we are in Christ Jesus and why the cross of Christ is the only way and why that relationship that we have by grace is the only life and and why as we sit here tonight as Christians that we can rejoice we turn our attention to verse 15 and it's really the answer to the statement that Paul has made in the second half of verse 14 here in chapter 6. And there in that second half it says, For we are not under the law, but grace. Oh, praise the Lord. Because if we're still under the law, we're all destined for a place we don't want to go. Amen? I am one of those people, as I was sharing, I got a chance, my poor bride has bronchitis, so I got a chance to share with the ladies on Tuesday morning and night, and were it not for the grace of God, if it was not that wonderful picture that we have of who we are in Christ, if I thought for a moment I had to earn God's favor, I'm not sure that I wouldn't just simply give up because it'd be an impossibility for me. Because every road sign I see, I'm trying to figure out how to go around it. Every speed limit sign on the freeway, well, it says 55. Does anybody else do this? When it says 55, you're thinking, how fast can I actually drive and not get a ticket? You're you're not thinking instantaneously. Can I can I you know, let me drive fifty four and be safe. It's it's fifty five plus whatever over that will keep me from seeing them. You know that thing. That's the way we are as human beings, right? We test our envelopes. That begins to happen, by the way, near birth, because we are all born as sinners. We all know how to transgress from day one. And so would you join me and pray, and let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, we are again just so grateful. We're so grateful that we get to come and, and study your word. Lord, we pray that the preciousness of it would not fall on deaf ears tonight, God, but we would have enriched soil of our hearts ready for you to plant the seeds of righteousness in. Would you take away the cares of the day, the week, Lord, the things that perhaps transpired on the way here, would you wash them away by your grace? And would our minds and our hearts be ready to receive the engrafted word, Lord, that we might be growing by it, Lord, into a beautiful tree that bears much fruit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people all said, Amen. So here comes the answer. 
verse 15 to the really the statement, but is posed as a question. For we're not under the law, but grace. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? In other words, what's the response of the human heart that's now recognized the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus? And again, he responds with exactly the same uh, phrase, meo genitu, that he said back in the second verse. He says, he's going to give us the answer to it, but what then shall we say to these things? How do we respond to it? If I'm no longer under the law, does that free me now to live my life however I want? Because I'm not under the law, I'm also not under the penalty of the law anymore. You see, the penalty of law of the law would have also meant my death. But I've been freed from that, and I've been freed by God's gracious gift. And he says, certainly not. Absolutely, unequivocally, no way on this earth. Heavens, no, is really what he's saying. He says, as the Lord is my witness, no way should I... Now, sin, because I'm under grace. You see, that's the question very often that people ponder when they find out about the grace of God. And that sometimes is the way they begin to live their life. They begin to live their life, well, if I can't earn my salvation, if it's a gift to me by God's grace... If the Lord just gives it to me, if that gift is irrevocable, if I've been given something and God himself will never leave me and forsake me, he won't take it away, then why can't I just sin as I please? After all, we're only here for a short period of time. And so to illustrate the reason why, we find the remainder of this chapter. And let's read it together. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves? And again, can I just say to you, I don't like the word slaves. I don't like the word slave, but it's here in our Bibles. It is a biblical word that in the context of the time, everyone would have completely understood. They would have used the term in this particular passage, douloi, that is a bond slave, someone who could not care for their own family or themselves, and so they voluntarily entered into the servitude of another person. In other words, it's volitional. So this is not someone whose life has been seized and stolen. This is someone who has said, I can't make it on my own. I need someone to help take care of me, and so I'm going to give myself voluntarily to someone else's control so that at least I won't starve to death. Please keep that context because then these verses are not quite so offensive and painful at times. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, that you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Now it seems almost as if he's repeating himself, but he's driving home a point. The Holy Spirit is trying to remind us of something. When you say to someone, look, I'm voluntarily placing myself under your control, and I'm going to accept whatever it is, the outcome, 
that you would put into my life because I've said yes to doing whatever you tell me to do, that person is the one who controls you. Whether sin leading unto death or obedience leading unto righteousness, you see, you can be and will be one of those two types of douloi, slaves. You're going to submit yourself either to righteousness or to sin. That's the point. Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you became, see it, slaves of righteousness. You see, whatever you obey, whomever you obey, however you obey, that's your master. It is the one to whom you say yes in obedience. That is how you prove who really is your master. You see, I can say that I'm someone's slave. I'm the slave of television. Let's try and break it out of the context here a little bit. I'm a slave to TV. I come home, man, the TV's on. I just can't help myself. I sit down. You see, the way that you prove that is by coming home and sitting down in front of the television and you just don't move. You have proven that you're a slave to the television. You see, because you could get up. You could go read a book. You could go for a walk. You could let my dogs lick your face. You could do something else, but you have chosen willingly to sit in front of the 65-inch sewer pipe and have it deliver things to you. You see, you've chosen to be a slave. You can choose to be a slave to righteousness, and you can choose to be a slave to unrighteousness. The choice is yours. And I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. You see, we're not perfect, but we're being perfected. Amen? We're better than we used to be. <laughs> praise God, I ain't what I used to be, but praise God, I'm becoming what I should be. Amen? We're being perfected, but we're not perfect yet. So we're on a journey. So that journey is dictated by one of two paths. Sin or righteousness. And he says, For just as you presented yourself, your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading unto more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Do you see the difference? The choice there is ours. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, when you were born into this world, you were a slave to sin because you were born a human being. You were born to the sin nature. You not only had the capacity to sin, you had the desire to sin, and you also had no way to prevent yourself from sinning because it was your nature. You had, in essence, signed up to be a sinner. 
And as you understood life a little better, some of us chose to be really good sinners, amen? We, we kind of worked pretty hard at unrighteousness. But he gives us now the contrast. He said, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Man, please underline that verse. And those moments when you're tempted to go back to the vomit, remember what the toilet looked like from head level. I know that's a little gross, but I'm doing it intentionally because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to say here. What fruit did you have when you were wandering around in your sin? What was going on in your life? What did it look like? You see, you can remember the party, but do you remember the after effects of the party? You can remember the relationship, but do you remember the after effects of the relationship? Do you remember the fruits of those things? If more people would stop for two seconds and actually think about what the fruit of that sin actually is, I wonder how many people would actually engage in it anymore. But we don't. You see, the devil gets you twisted a little bit. He says, oh, you know, it's going to be better next time. But is it ever better next time? No. For the end of those things is death. Spiritual, physical, emotional, Death, death in every way that death is possible is the end of those things. But now, here's the good news. But now, but because, because of the blood of the cross, because of what Christ has done for us, but now, having been set free from sin, you signed up for another master. Having become slaves of God, you willingly said, look, I can't pay my own debt. I need to be forgiven. I want to be forgiven. Lord, I'm placing myself as a servant to you, as a duloi to you. I'm offering my life a living sacrifice, exactly as Romans 12, 1 says. I am giving myself over to you, Lord. And I'm going to live for you. I'm going to be a slave for you now, God. Having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. You see, the fruit of your old life was uncleanness. The fruit of your old life was pain. The fruit of your old life was really despicable things. The fruit of your old life was very easy to spot because it stinketh, much like Lazarus. You were wearing your grave clothes. Well, you thought it was a party dress. You, you thought it was the nice ride. You, you believed it was something that was good. But now that you see it through God's eyes, you go, oh, man. Was I walking around dressed like a pauper and I didn't even know it? For you have your fruit to holiness and the end... Oh, praise God, everlasting life. Amen? 
For the wages of sin, here's the second brick in the Romans road. For the wages of sin is death. What are wages? What are wages? Wages are your rightful payment for that which you have done, right? Your wages you receive from your employer, they're yours. You've earned them. They belong to you because you've invested your time, your talents, and your treasure in the employ of someone else. And the paycheck you receive is from that work, from what you've done. The wages, the payment for, the just compensation is the very best way to look at it, the just compensation for your sin is death. It's death. That's actually what you've earned. That ought to scare every last human being. In other words, all that my life attains to as a sinner only entitles me to receive a paycheck one day that sends me eternally to damnation. The wages of sin is death. Here's the next but. But! I love those. Don't you love the buts in the Bible? I love the buts in the Bible. But... God, who is rich in Ephesians, yeah. But God, who is rich in I love them. You see, because they always show a contrast. You see, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God. Now, notice the huge contrast. One is earned. Amen. Wages. You spent your time. You worked hard at it. You lived your life engaged in sinful activity, and the just compensation for that is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And notice what he says, our Lord. He gives us the full understanding of who Jesus is. Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, He's Jesus, God who is salvation, Yahushua. He is Yahushua, God who is salvation, Christ, Christus, the Messiah. The one that the Old Testament said would one day come and free mankind from his sin. Who is our Lord, Master. You see how it ties into the whole concept of whose slave are you? You see, you can be gifted life eternal, or you can work for death eternal. Therein lies the contrast. As you look at this passage, the greatest problem that mankind faces is not our growing national debt. It's not the ridiculousness of politics. It's not climate change. 
It's not a one world order. The greatest problem that mankind faces is not our socioeconomic things. It's not racism, as bad as that is. It's not slavery, which still exists in our world. As horrible as that is. And every human being should be working to eradicate those things from the face of the earth. But that's not the greatest problem. The greatest problem that mankind faces is sin. That's the greatest problem. And if you cure the sin problem in mankind, you will fix all the rest of the problems. Because every one of those other problems come from the main problem, which is we are sinners. And we gravitate towards sin. Now there's some people that don't necessarily believe that. And I understand, I even respect the fact that maybe you're here tonight and you would say, well, that's not really true. Don't believe me. Believe what your Bible says. Because the Bible says there's only one thing that will keep you from heaven. And that's sin. There is also only one way that you can show God whether you're his slave or you are Satan's slave. And that's sin. You get to tell God exactly whose side you're on. You get to tell other people whose side you're on. And that is what's in view here in this passage. The severity of sin. Sin, whether you realize it or not, is so evil. By the time we get to chapter 8, that the entire creation groans because of sin. You know what that tells me? All of our ecological problems have nothing actually to do with all the things we think. Those are just the symptoms of the real problem, which is inherently man is evil. And so we use and abuse, and we don't take care of things well because we're sinners, not because we want to cut down all the trees on the planet, not because we keep producing too much ozone, Not because we're polluting our oceans. We pollute our oceans because we're sinners. We don't see it as part of God's beautiful creation. We see it as something to use. That's what people without God do. We're selfish. Self-centered. And so that whole problem, as you think on what's going on in our world, really stems from the central issue, which is sin defiles the soul. It defiles our our position one with another. It it is to precious things what rust is to steel. You see, rust is simply the residue that's caused by steel oxidizing. As iron oxidizes, it produces rust. The very same thing that makes up the rust makes up the steel. It's still carbon, largely. But you mix a little air and water with it. And corrosion, decay takes place. You see, that's the way sin works in our life. Sin to us is actually an invisible thing, but it has very visible results, doesn't it? None of us wander around and go, wow, I got like four pieces of sin on me right there. I'm pretty sure you don't do that, right? 
Because sin comes from within you. It's imperceptible. It's already there in that sense. Sin is rebellious. It ignores. It tramples the Word of God. If sin had its total way, if if sin could actually reign if there were not the Holy Spirit, had Christ not come, then sin would even even attempt to, to erase God. And you only need to go to Genesis 3 to look at that in in fairly great technicolor. Because what was said to Adam and Eve was a very simple thing. Has God surely said? No, God didn't really mean that. He just understands that if you eat of that, then you're going to be just like Him. So go ahead and do it. Do you see the selfishness? Do you see the insidious nature of sin? all the while pretending that that piece of fruit was better than all the rest of the fruit in the garden, sin entices and it draws you in. And all of a sudden you're going, you know what, okay, I'll eat of that. Can I tell you that sin is also ungrateful? You, You see, when you wake up from that bender, when you find out you've got that STD, you find out you've got AIDS, when you find out your bank account's empty, when you've crashed your car and you're in the back of a squad car and you're on your way down to county because you didn't believe that five beers was actually over the limit. You see, sin is ungrateful because sin's mocking you at that point in time. And what happens is your mind is now filled with fear and anger and angst. You're not sitting there going, wow, this is awesome. No, you finally realize exactly how insidious it is, and it just mocks you. Tries to twist your mind just a little bit to maybe make you think somehow it was someone else's fault. And so what do we do with sin? It's not my fault. Red Fox used to say, the devil made me do it. Remember that? I used to love that show. The devil made me do it. You know what? There's some truth to that. Isn't there? He's back there twisting things around. Oh, just go ahead. It'll be all right. All the while, you are becoming more and more deeply enslaved to the master's sin. You think junkies don't understand that? Someone that's come from that lifestyle and they have absolutely had their life wrecked by drugs, they eventually realize we call it a disease, but it's really slavery. They're enslaved to the sin that is the drug. We call it an addiction. But it's really sin. Sin is unthankful as well as ungrateful. As you engage in those things, you you aren't even thankful for the things that you do have. You just start complaining about the things that you don't have. Eventually you begin to take God's blessings and you use them to serve yourself and to serve Satan himself. 
And when it's all said and done, sin begins to dominate you. For Martin Luther King, when he delivered his I Have a Dream speech, it, it ends with, free at last, free at last, thank God I'm free at last, amen? Uh, those are the lines that Dr. King finished with there in, in August 28th of 1963. As he delivers that speech, he was, of course, talking about the racial divide in our country. And he was talking about that freedom. And he understood that that was a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem still today. When you think about what sin does to you, sin dominates your mind. All of a sudden you're thinking through things and all you begin to think about is sin on top of sin. And you add sin to sin. It it dominates your affections, the things that you desire, the things that you want. Those relationships that you're probably not supposed to have, and all of a sudden you really want them even more than you used to want them. And then eventually, as Jeremiah would tell us there in Jeremiah 44, it actually begins to dominate your will so that your will becomes affected. So it's not just thinking about it. It's not just desiring it. It actually becomes the force of who you are. And you can surely see that when people get into heavy drug use. After a while, it is horrible. Horrible what happens because eventually it's almost against their own human will that those things are done. But that's the effect of sin. You see, sin promises satisfaction, but instead it brings misery and frustration and hopelessness. Job so much understood this in Job 5 that he says, Man is born for trouble. And the sparks fly up. In other words, the moment we hit the ground running, man, the sparks of sin fly off of us. We, we have been, in that sense, made with the capacity to choose who we're going to serve. Again, when we get to chapter 8, we're going to see that all creation is actually subjected to futility because of sin. Sin entered the world, and through that sin, death became a reality. It's a universal problem. With the single exception of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, every last person that's ever been born was born a sinner. Because he was born of a virgin, he didn't have the sin nature that you and I have. He still had the capacity, but he didn't have the nature. So he was tested in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. Completely sinless. Full victory over sin. But not so much for us, amen? But you see, unless you're redeemed, unless you're changed, unless you're transformed, unless your mind is renewed, you you remain with that sin nature. And so what Scripture reminds us of here is, is the natural man is actually a willing slave of sin. Nobody puts a gun to our head and says, okay, you've got to be a sinner. And I can tell you this as a camp director for 20 years. Kids are born sinners. They do, you're thinking, I would actually ask them, why are you doing this? I don't know. (laughs) You sprayed hairspray in her hair and lit it on fire. What did you think would happen? I don't know. We thought it'd kind of like be a frizzy or something. And you, you can't look at him and go, 
Well, I'm glad I would never do that because I did stuff like that. Right? Parents, don't we do that? Don't you ever kind of, you tell your kids, no, no, and then you go in the back and you laugh a little bit because you did the same thing, only worse? Why is that? Because we're born sinners, amen? Nobody came to you and said, okay, today if you sit down, lesson three is lying. I'm going to teach you how to cheat today. You put two kids together with a piece of uh, one cookie, you're going to see lying and cheating all at once. Tell them to break it in half and share. They'll be like, they'll get out the micrometer. It's like, well, that's the bigger piece. I'm keeping that one. It's because we're born sinners. You do not have to teach your kids how to sin. And I don't, and disclaimer, what I'm saying I'm not asking you to go do. If you bury your kids in a cargo container in the desert with air conditioning, with no outside stimuli, they will still sin. They will do that. They'll figure out ways to do something that's displeasing to God in there. It's because it's in us. It's not the force of the outside world. As bad as that is, that's not the actual issue. The issue is internal. And that's why this passage says we have to choose who we're going to serve. Has to choose, we have to choose who we're going to then dedicate our lives to. Sometimes we're weak simply because we have an innate human weakness. But at the end of the day, even if that innate human weakness were dealt with, you'd find some other way to interact sinfully. Pride, arrogance, bitterness, unforgiveness. You see, we get so focused on things like drugs and alcohol and sex that we forget that God says bad attitudes are sin. Amen? So when you cop an attitude with somebody, when you're doing your taxes, I hate this stinking country. You know, you're filling that out. Why do I have to fill this out? You know, you're, you, you know your head ain't right. That's sin. Because you have an attitude about somebody that God created in his image. Think about it for a second. You ever been guilty of saying things that if you knew someone heard you that that was intended toward, you would be going, oh, I did not say that. It's called character assassination. It's called slander. How many of us still do that, even as believers? Those juicy little tidbits you tell around the office. Can you see what Susie did? You know what Jimmy did last week? And you're not trying to tell someone because you want that person to really care for them. Oh, let's pray, brother. Don't use God as your excuse to gossip. Or we're going to have a prayer meeting. Or we're going to all get together because you know how deeply Brother Bob is in sin. And we need to deliver that brother right now. Because if he fornicates anymore, you know what I'm saying, right? Have you been around those kind of people? I have. 
They use the prayer meeting as an excuse to try and gossip, basically. It's holy gossip, though. That's the way they phrase it, though. That's because they're sinners in need of a Savior. That's because we're not fully the way we're going to be when we finally get to heaven. Amen? It just proves the point of how deeply ingrained the sin nature is in the human condition. So the burning question, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? If the law no longer needs to be obeyed, if God's grace covers the sin, then a lot of people would argue, hey, I do whatever I want. This passage is for those who think such things. And the answer, of course, is certainly not. No way on this earth. And in fact, they were actually accusing Paul here of condoning sin. That's really kind of the, the gist of why he's making this statement. You see, the doctrine of grace has always been subject to that charge. People still use that today. I have the legalists. I have the moralists. I get letters. I get cards. Well, you know, you're antinomian. I am not against the law. Matter of fact, I believe that every yacht and every tittle of the law still stands. I just believe that Jesus Christ fulfilled the demands of the law, and I now live in grace. Doesn't mean that I'm not supposed to be good still. Doesn't mean that I'm not supposed to live my life according to those standards, because those standards, the moral standards, the ethical standards of the law are still a picture of God's perfection. We're supposed to live that way. So when it says, don't be a drunkard, that's your command from the Lord. That's not negotiable, family. When it says, a man of God should not be given to much wine, it means exactly that. Still. When it says that any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage is either fornication, homosexuality, or incest, or some other thing, it means exactly that still today. In other words, we as believers are not supposed to do those things. Ever. You see, people say, well, I'm under grace. I'm under grace. They even dance like that. Because they're so happy, because here's what they actually mean. I can sin. I can do whatever I want. Oh, no, you can't. It's explained to you in the remainder of this, because there's an axiom given, verse 16. And this is the self-evident truth. When we hold these truths to be self-evident, our Declaration of Independence... These truths are self-evident. What are they? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are self-evident truths. In other words, everyone should understand that those things should be endowed to every last living, breathing human being. That's called an axiom. Here's the axiom. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting to righteousness. Yikes! 
You realize what that says? In other words, it says, I will show you, as James put it, my faith by my works. That because I am a child of God, then my life should be looking a whole lot like Jesus. And I should be living a life that is holy and righteous and as sinless as I can possibly get. Not only is it not freedom, you see, by serving a master, you're saying, you're my master. Pretty simple, isn't it? When you serve sin, you're saying, sin's my master. Now, let me be really careful here. This is not talking about you earning your salvation by works. But it is saying that you prove whose master, you, the master you really serve, by what you do with your life. So when someone comes to me and says, you know, I'm a believer, but, you know, I just really like to smoke crack, and I'm a bank robber, and oh, by the way, I just stole your car. Thank you very much. I usually will say something like, you might want to check Romans chapter 6, because it sounds a whole lot like you're serving the devil to me. And you dictate whose master you, you really are, what master you serve by the way you live your life. And so if all you do is sin, I would say to you, you might want to check and see who's your boss. Amen? That's the picture. You see, cheap grace is not taught in Scripture. Cheap grace is not taught in Scripture. Remember how this book started. And such were, past tense, some of you. And there's a pretty long list of sins there in Romans chapter 1. Amen? And remember how it ended? And not only those who do such things, but those who approve of such things. You see, Scripture is very clear how believers are supposed to live their lives. And here's why. Because God gets the blame for how we live our lives. When I say I'm a child of God, and I live in unrepentant, repetitive, unabashed, unashamed sin, then I'm saying Satan's my master, not God. But if I'm telling people I'm one of God's kids, then I'm telling them that God approves of those things. And that's why it's so dangerous. Because then a person who doesn't understand the truth looks at what you do, and they believe what you do over what you say. Do you get it? It's important you do, because this, you want a number one rule of child rearing? Kids will believe what you do over what you say 100% of the time. So if you say one thing, do another, they're going to believe what you do. And oh, by the way, so will the neighbor kids and their moms and dads and everyone on your street. So the axiom, a person who is bound is bound. And so all slaves voluntarily slave to one master, the douloi, are bound either in obedience or disobedience. Do you understand that? You see, if you're sinning constantly, then your obedience is to sin. 
If you're trying to be righteous most of the time, then your obedience is to righteousness. It's not a hard concept. But boy, do we try and make excuses as to why it doesn't apply to us. Over and over and over and over and over again, I listen to people, well, you know, if you just understood my situation. Do you think God doesn't understand the human condition? Do you know why there are no exceptions when God says something's right or God says something wrong? Do you know why there are zero exceptions in the entire Bible for anything that God has said one way or the other? When God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, do you know why he says that? Because he actually hates divorce. Do you know why he says you are not supposed to fornicate? Do you know why he says that? Because it's never okay with God. And so when you have somebody that comes to you and says, well, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I just can't control myself. That's a shot at God. You're trying to say that in your circumstance and situation, God was wrong. God didn't know what he was talking about. And your circumstance is different than all the rest of humankind that's ever existed on the face of the earth. So you might want to think about your justifications for your sin. Because as believers, we are supposed to be as close to sinless as possible. Are we going to miss that? Yes. Unfortunately, the answer to that is yes. And praise God, that's where grace meets us. Amen? Because God's grace is able to keep us as well. So you're not earning it. It's still a gift. But the master you obey, that's your master. Not the master you profess, the master you obey. You see, probably everyone in here believes in the law of gravity, amen? Can I tell you that you all believe in the law of gravity? You know how I know that? Because all of you are still here. None of you went to the top of the building, jumped off and said, I can fly! Because you know you're going to go... Why? Because gravity is true. So you serve the law of gravity by undertaking your life in such a way that you say yes to the law of gravity. You don't jump off of buildings. You believe that if you jump out of a plane, you better have a parachute. Otherwise, you're going to be very thin. (laughs) Do not recommend that for weight loss. You see, you obey the law to prove that you believe the law. Do you get it? You obey the law to prove that you believe the law. If you don't obey the law, you're saying, I don't believe the law. We live our lives for righteousness, for Christ's sake. Nothing could be more obvious. When you present, look what it says, when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey. The choice is yours, righteousness or unrighteousness. It's your choice every day. It's my choice every day. To live a habitually unrighteous life, to live a habitually, notice what I said. I didn't say perfect, did I? I said a habitually unrighteous life. In other words, someone who does not care an iota for the things of God. 
someone who constantly makes excuses for their behavior, someone who obviously knows which way is right and yet chooses to go the wrong way, someone who intentionally transgresses God's regulations as you understand them from the Word. That's not somebody who doesn't know what God's Word says and they biff it. That is someone who understands fully and completely exactly what it says and I don't like it, I'm going the other way. The person that lives habitually in sin needs to check and see. They need to check and see whether they are of the faith or not. Because if you keep doing that, you end up in exactly the place that Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 tells you you could end up. You don't know. You have zero assurance. I don't know about you. I wouldn't like that. So when God speaks... Jeff listens, and then Jeff does. As imperfectly as I do that. You should have seen my driving before. Stop judging me. I'm trying to lighten the mood here. I didn't just give you a death sentence. Teaching you the truth. You see, people don't like these passages. Because we like to be blissfully ignorant. And the reason these passages are so wonderful is these are the secrets to a vibrant walk with the Lord. This is how it gets awesome. Because here's what happens. You see, whereas before you were doing good not to do the big things, now all of a sudden when there's a little attitude, God can go, you know what, you really shouldn't do that. You go, I'm sorry, Lord. And you obey. And you turn the other direction. It's called repentance, by the way. Amen? If we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. Amen? First John 1, 9. You see, that's a wonderful thing. Because that cleansing that's being talked about in that passage isn't cleansing for salvation necessarily, though that occurs first. That is cleansing for your daily walk with the Lord. That's your relational cleansing. As a believer, you need relational cleansing. You know Why? The earth is muddy. It's dirty. It's yucky. Stuff happens here, and sometimes it gets on you. And so you ask the Lord, Lord, man, I was someplace I shouldn't have been. I went over to that friend's house. I had no idea they were going to do what they did, but I stayed there. I, I should have left, but I didn't. You know what? I, God, I had a couple of beers. And I'm sorry because I sullied your name. I sat there and did what I knew I shouldn't have done. And Lord, I'm sorry. You see, here's what happens. Dad puts his hand on He says, it's okay. I forgive you and you are cleansed and your relationship with me is restored. Hallelujah. Because then he's not mad at you anymore. And here's what used to happen. And you can probably all relate to it from your childhood. Do you remember waiting for dad to get home? Was that any fun? Because you knew you were going to die. Look, I'm old enough that we still received beatings, okay? We're not talking about, well, I'm going to have to give you a timeout. I'm going to have to knock you out, is what happened in my house. The rod of correction to the seed of knowledge is what happened. You see, but you had to wait for Dad to get home, and the whole time... The thinking about what was going to happen was worse than what actually happened, right? That's called guilt. Guilt and shame. The very same thing that Adam and Eve had in the garden, wasn't it? 
They were afraid of God. They were guilty. And they had shame because they were waiting for God. They knew they shouldn't do it. They did it anyway. And instead of saying, we did it. We ate of the apple. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. What did they say? It was her. It was the serpent. They blamed each other. They blamed the devil. They took no responsibility for anything. They would not change. They would not turn. They did not do it. So what did God have to do? God had to go kill an innocent animal to cover them. That's called G-R-A-C-E, grace. God's still the God of grace, family. And as this wraps up, he just simply explains these two slaveries. It's the very same thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. He said there in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. No one can. For either he will hate the one and love the other, he'll hold to the one, despise the other, but you cannot, and Jesus used the the example of possessions or money, you cannot serve God and mammon. Why do you think he said that? Because the absolute truth of the matter is, you can only be a slave to one master at a time. You cannot have two masters. It's an impossibility. Even if it's your this one slave this minute and you're this one slave the other, you're going back and forth. You're still only one at a time. And so at the very best, you're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and you don't know, neither does anyone else, whether you're actually saved or not. Or you're all the way over here mostly sinning, which says you're a slave to sin and thereby pretty likely... You'd have to wonder, you'd have to question, you'd have to think, am I actually saved? You see, if you're over here, the evidence is fairly clear. That's why Jesus said, by their fruit, you shall know them. What comes off the tree dictates what kind of tree it is. But if you have righteousness, and as imperfect as that is, but it's mostly righteousness... Then you walk around in the assurance, man, God is working in my life. I've been freed from that sin. I'm serving the Lord, and the fruit proves it. It's real simple. Don't let it get complex on you. You see, the first truth that expresses itself here in the last verse, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death is actually earned. It's by engaging in sin and being unrepentant. It's the just, it's the rightful compensation for a life that is characterized by sin and lived apart from God. You earn it. But, 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 the the incredible, inexorable, absolute is that the free gift And here's the glorious thing. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And by every definition, all gifts are free, amen? You can't earn them. They've been given to you. Praise the Lord for that, amen? Because if you had to be good first, we're all toast. But you don't have to be good first. 
But here's what happens once you've received the gift. Going, you know, I should probably be good. I really should change. Because I realize that this is nailing Jesus to the cross again. This is trampling the precious Lamb of God's blood underfoot again. This is me telling God Jesus wasn't sufficient to free me from this the first time. I need to do it over and over and over and over again. You see, Jesus Christ is the only way to be free from sin. And he who the Son has set free is free indeed. That word indeed means to be continually, constantly, totally, and completely free. That's who we are in Christ. We prove who our master is by the way we live our lives. And family, Jesus isn't looking for people who want to add you know, him to their sin. He's looking to free us from that sin. Jesus is not looking for people who want to apply his high moral standards and character to, to their unregenerate lives. Jesus is not an add-on. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And he is the only Lord that we should have. He calls himself to anyone who's willing to exchange sinfulness for his holiness. It's what he does. As crazy as that sounds, that is what he does with grace. He takes your old life and he transplants a new life in you. That's why, behold, all things are becoming new. I am being renewed in my mind and in my body and in my spirit. He calls those to himself who are willing to die and say, you know what, I'll only have one Lord. He doesn't want us to be enslaved to unrighteousness. He wants us to be a slave of righteousness. Like, I can't help it. I'm being obedient to the righteousness that I've been called to. We come on his terms. And he changes our destiny when we do that. We go from eternal death to eternal life. And so whatever the cost of that is, it's absolutely worth it. Amen? Would you stand? Worship team's going to come back out. And I want to just ask tonight, now, some of the pastors will be coming forward in a moment, but I'm going to ask right now where you're standing. Maybe you're here tonight and you've just been struggling with sin. And you don't honestly know, because of that struggle, you don't honestly know. You, you couldn't really say, am I a slave to Christ or am I a slave to sin? You don't honestly know. I want to pray with you tonight. And so would you bow your heads? Please close your eyes. And if that's you tonight, maybe it's to make a profession of faith. Maybe it's just to say, look, I I need a fresh start. I've been playing both sides for too long. I've been walking with one foot in the world and one foot in church. If that's you tonight, 
I want you to just simply raise your hand right where you're at. I want to pray with you tonight. See that hand in the back? Any others? Any others? You, you just need some help. I see that hand. Let's keep them up for a moment, if you would, please. Anyone else? I see that hand. Praise God. Anyone else? I see that hand as well. I see that hand and that hand and that one and that one and that one. There are hands up all over the sanctuary. See, please just keep your hands up for a, for a moment longer. We're going to pray together right where you're at. Look, it's real simple because God loves you and he doesn't want you to carry that burden any longer. For those who raise your hands, if you put your hands down, just pray with me. Heavenly Father, I admit that I, I haven't been walking with you and I need your help. I'm asking you to free me from the bondage of sin. Lord, I've been going places I shouldn't go and I've been doing things I shouldn't do. How my mind has been occupied with another master and it's not good. And I'm asking you to take away the desire for that sin. I'm asking you to take away the power of that sin. I'm asking you to come in and be my real master, my Lord. And I pray that you give me victory over these things that have bound me. And Lord, help me to walk with you uprightly. Lord, help me to be unashamed. And thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you for your cleansing. I thank you that I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And all those old things, those things of even today, are passing away and they are forgiven and I am cleansed. And in Jesus' name, I thank you. Amen. 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 Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as your people. Send us out with joy. Lead us with your peace. Lord, help us to never, ever make you ashamed. Lord, would you not have to turn your eyes from our behaviors, our thoughts. Lord, the words that we say, the life that we live. God, would we be well-pleasing to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. Help us to be successful, Lord, in all that we do for your kingdom, for your glory, and for your namesake. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.